really excited about delving into Genesis 12 and Pastor Blair preaching through that. Uh, but uh, later this week, he found out about his nephew passing away. And uh, so he is not ministering to us this morning, but he's ministering to his, his family. And um, so please be in prayer for him, be in prayer for that family of, of his as uh, they're grieving. Um, one of the painful, most painful things you can experience in life and, and losing a child. So just be with him and his family, but also uh, their travels uh, back and forth there. Um, so would you mind uh, joining me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we uh, pray for the Waddell family and uh, the extended family there as they grieve the loss of Ben. Um, I pray for your peace and comfort that all, can only come from you. There, Lord, there's no explanation in this life of, of why we deal with these things besides the generalities that we live in a fallen world um, of pain and, 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 and hurt and suffering, Lord. But I pray for Pastor Blair and uh, Lisa as they're there that they can provide comfort there. I uh, pray for that family. I pray for the Waddells as they are traveling back to this week and then I'm thankful for their, their ministry there and can't think of anybody better to go over there to, to serve. And Lord, I pray for our time in the Word this morning as we study Mark. I pray, Lord, that uh, your Word will uh, continue to break uh, ground in our hearts, that we will be uh, receptive to what your Word says, and, and Lord, walk in it uh, and take comfort in the Gospel. Um, Lord, and take comfort in your promises And Lord, uh, I pray Lord, that you are uh, through me, Lord, that uh, I will only speak what is in line with your word and not stray to the left or to the right. And I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. This is the most famous line of the book, The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Coming to Christ means a giving up of yourself, your ambitions, your will, all to Christ's will. And this was a mark of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life. In 1931, at age 25, he came to Berlin and was ordained as a pastor in the evangelical church. In the early 1930s, there was a period of great upheaval in, in Germany with political instability and mass unemployment leading to the election of Adolf Hitler in 1933. While the election of Hitler was widely welcomed by the German population, including significant parts of the church, church Bonhoeffer became a, a firm opponent of Hitler's philosophy. And in April 1933, Bonhoeffer raised opposition to the persecution of Jews and, and, and urged and argued that the church had a responsibility to act against this kind of policy. And during this time, he wrote The Cost of Discipleship, a study on the Sermon on the Mount. And in it, he argued for a greater spiritual discipline and practice of what he termed costly grace. He wrote of cheap grace. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. 
Worried he would be required to swear an oath to Hitler or be arrested, Bonhoeffer left Germany for the United States in June of 1939. After less than two years, he returned again to Germany because he did feel guilty for seeking sanctuary and not having the courage to practice what he preached. So after a failed attempt to depose Hitler on July 20th, 1944, Bonhoeffer was moved to the Gestapo's high security prison. And he then was placed in a couple of concentration camps. But even during these times in the concentration camps, he continued to minister to the fellow prisoners. Payne Best, a fellow inmate and officer of the British Army, wrote this observation of Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was different, just quite calm and normal, seemingly perfectly at ease. His soul really shone in the dark desperation of our prison. He was one of the very few men I have ever met to whom God was real and ever close to him. On April 8, 1945, Bonhoeffer was sentenced to death by hanging. Like many of the conspirators, he was hung by wire to prolong suffering. But just before his execution, he asked a fellow inmate to relate a message to his English friend, Bishop George Bell. And this message said, This is the end for me, the beginning of life. The camp doctor who witnessed the execution of Bonhoeffer later wrote, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer kneeling on the floor praying fervently to God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer and then climbed the few steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued after a few seconds. In the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. Church, is Christ worth death? Is Christ worth the pain and suffering he calls us to? Is the glory we look forward to in the future worth the seemingly meaningless rejection we face today? This morning, we will look at the cost of following Christ, the Son of the living God, from the Gospel of Mark. The verbal confession we make continually that Jesus is Christ and Lord calls for a life that embodies this same confession. Now, is it the same for everybody? No. Is it the sa- at the same level? No. Will we all die a martyr's death? No. But there is a dying to self for all of us who receive Christ. This morning, we'll examine Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 9, 13. The gospel of Mark is the most action-packed of the gospels. It contains no birth narrative or prolonged teaching and parables. Mark was conveying the sovereign power of this son of man. And this son of man was totally unlike any powerful figure they were accustomed to hearing about. He, the Son of Man, will be glorified through suffering. What? And guess what? His followers' lives will mark this pattern as well. So this morning we will see the turning point of Mark's gospel. The most puzzling aspect of Christ's kingdom is revealed. 
So please turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 8, verse 27, and it's in page 844 in the Black Pew Bible in front of you. 844. In Mark 8, 27 through 9, 13, we will see who Christ is and what he must do. And then we will see Christ's glory and what we will share with him. Now, I know you don't have an outline on your, in your bulletin, so I'll kind of flag the, the outline for you here. First point, since Christ must suffer, his followers must share in it with him. Since Christ must suffer, his followers must share in it with him. Look at verses 27 through 38. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's stop there. Okay, the, the Gospel of Mark dramatically shifts on this passage. This is the pivotal text of the Gospel account. Jesus is walking with his disciples and asks them a question. Who do people say that I am? Well, they tell him the people's speculations. John the Baptist, well, probably because of his calls to repentance. Elijah, well, probably because he raised a few from the dead. Or at least one of the prophets, probably from his preaching and his divisive message. But he points the question to his disciples. But who do you say that I am? Of course, the spokesman of the group, Peter, speaks up. You are the Christ. He gets it, right? He's right on the money. That's who he is. He is the promised one, as explained in the whole Old Testament. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. All right, let's go preach the good news. Christ is king and is inaugurating his kingdom right now. Well, nope, slow down. Jesus rebukes or warns them not to say a word about this for right now. I make note of that word rebuke, that repetition of the word rebuke here. But why? They got it, didn't they? Well, let's continue in verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. 
so this is the first time in the whole gospel account of Mark that Jesus says what he is ultimately going to do, why he came to this earth. He says everything as clear as can be, no parables, no metaphors, no figures of speech. He tells them literally what is going to happen. And when he told them this, their jaws dropped to the ground. This can't be. You're a king. And what does he say to them? That he must suffer. He must have a torturous death. He must be rejected by the religious leaders, meaning they don't accept his claim. They would say if his claims of messiahship, they don't add up. He's either a false messiah or a failed messiah. And then he must be raised again, which to them, they had no clue what he meant. So how do they respond? Well, remember that spokesman, Peter, rebukes Jesus. Same word used here, Jesus rebuking his disciples. Now Peter has the audacity to rebuke Jesus. And how does Jesus respond? With another rebuke. He calls Peter Satan. This is a full-blown argument here. Peter has the audacity to yell rebukingly at Jesus. So you have this argument going happening. Peter's mind is on worldly matters, not on things of the kingdom. And that's it. They just don't get it. And that because of this, they are not allowed to speak in his name yet. They don't understand his mission, and they don't understand his kingdom. So what does Jesus do? Well, he tells everyone, including the other followers, to sit down and listen. And he then gives them an impassioned speech of what it means to follow him. So when we all hear this, we count the cost. And he's not lying here. He's not speaking hyperbole. This is what will happen when you follow Jesus. Everybody loves the conquering King Jesus, but they don't love the suffering servant Jesus. But to follow Jesus into glory, you must follow him into his suffering. Again, at verses 34 through 35. And calling the crowd to them with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. If anybody wants to follow Jesus, if anyone wants to be a part of his body of the church, if anyone wants to be with him in glory, you must deny yourself, take up his cross of suffering, and follow him. If you seek to save your life, if you want to stick with the status quo of your life, if you want to remain in your own routines in life, if you want to stay in your own comfort zones in life, if you want to keep living the sinful lifestyle you're living, you will lose your life for all eternity. But... If you lose your life, you reject the status quo of life. You see life in Christ as abundantly better than your comfort zone. You see the sweetness of the Savior as much better than the sweetness of sin. You truly will save your life and enjoy him forever. Look at verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. So think about that statement for a moment. There's nothing more valuable in this world than the soul. 
Why would you exchange your eternal soul for temporal things, tangible things that are here today and gone tomorrow? Temporal comforts, temporal titles, temporal money, temporal pleasures. It's all fleeting. It's all a mist, a vapor. But for some reason, it's incredibly tempting. Sin is totally irrational. Things of this world that we fall for, it's just so irrational. But remember this, and what Jesus says, the whole world is not as valuable as the soul. Again, going forward to verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So this statement here is a punch to the gut to Peter, if you will. It's is spoken right at him and at us as well. Peter, at this time of his life, was ashamed of the gospel. Peter said to Jesus, no, 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 this, this can't be right. This is shameful of the Christ. The Christ does not suffer. He does not die. He's a conqueror. People that follow the Messiah are prosperous. They have God's favor. They have their debts paid off miraculously. They're healed of all their diseases. They have prosperous financial futures. They speak things into existence. They live in luxury as sons and daughters of the king. Jesus is glorious, not a sufferer. Likewise, his followers prosper in all their ways. That's not Jesus. That's TV preacher Jesus. That's New York Times bestseller Jesus. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible calls us to join in on his suffering. We join in on the ridicule of being a people that believe in a crucified Savior. We join in the ridicule, in receiving the ridicule for believing in the resurrection of the body. That we believe the Bible. That we believe that Jesus is the only way to the Father. We believe sin separates all from God. We believe you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. We live lives receptive of ridicule when we don't indulge in the sinful drunkenness of the world, when we refuse to lie in business deals, when we are disowned by our family because of Jesus, when we stand up for what is right and good and we don't affirm the prideful views of the people in our culture. We suffer for unexplainable reasons, yet with the perseverance of Christ. Verse 38, it's, it's scary. But the shame of this world, which we will all, as Christ bearers, will, will, will experience. The shame of this world can never compare to the shame of our Savior, which the world will endure. But is it worth it? In the midst of it, is it worth it? Is Christ worth it all? Do you agree with the Apostle Paul when he says in Romans 8, 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And what is this glory? Well, next we see, this is the second point. Since Christ must be glorified, his followers will share in it with him. Verses 1 through 13. 
And he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they, they asked him, why did the scribes say that, Elijah, that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does first come first to restore all things. And how is it written that the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So after Jesus explains the cost of following him, he changes the subject to describe what some of his listeners will experience soon. They will see his glory. Now, was this just something they will see in a distant future? Well, the text kind of answers that for us. The episode in this section continues. After six days, Peter, James, and John, Jesus' inner circle, if you will, come up to the mountain with Jesus. Now, let's take a moment to think through a couple of figures in the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah. Remember, Moses would go up to the mountain to receive the revelation, the, the law of the Lord for Israel. Moses was allowed to see the glory of the Lord. As you remember, at one time, his face glowed so much from experience of glory that his face was blinding to the Israelites. He had to wear a veil. He saw the glory of the Lord. Yet, as you recall, he suffered his whole life as leader of the stiff-necked Israelites. Years later, Elijah the prophet was on the mountain and saw the glory of the Lord. He had to cover his face, and he heard from the Lord. Yet, same way, was on the run for his whole life as Ahab and Jezebel sought to kill him, suffering his whole life as a prophet of the Lord. And now these two figures stand tall in Jewish thought, probably because of what they experienced. And I'll fast forward a few thousand years later. Peter, James, and John experienced what Moses and Elijah experienced. They saw the glory of the Lord. And years later, all of them would suffer horribly at the hands of persecutors. But they're fine now, experiencing Christ's glory. But what did they see? They saw the Lord in his splendor and glory. Let's look at the description. It says that Jesus was transfigured. The word here is where we get the word metamorphosis. Jesus' clothing and total uh, appearance was blindingly white. 
They saw Jesus in his glory. And who was with, with him? Moses and Elijah. But notice no description of their clothing or appearance. There was no splendor about them because Jesus is separate from them. And Moses is the highest prophet in all of Judaism. Elijah is an honored figure as, a figure as well. Yet Jesus outshines them. And this, was, this is what makes Peter's upcoming statement so absurd. Can we build three shelters for each one of you? So you know when you're nervous and scared, you sometimes say dumb things? These three figures are not on equal footing, as Peter's suggestion implies. There's only one who is the glory of the Father. Thus the Father commands the disciples to listen to his Son. They and we are to listen and obey his words. So to disobey the Son is to disobey the Father. To obey the Son is to obey the Father. So here, the disciples got to see a temporary glimpse of Jesus and his glory, of which they now see eternally. And one glimpse of him and his glory should make all the suffering we experience, as he promised, seem like nothing. It's hard for us to imagine just a glimpse of his glory makes all the, the suffering we experience in this day today seem like nothing. And as they leave the mountain, Jesus is back in his normal attire, looking at an average appearance. But he tells them not to make this known until after his resurrection. Keep quiet. Just say, okay, Peter, James, and John. Of course they don't. Instead of obeying, they ask among themselves what rising from the dead means and why the scribes say Elijah must come first. And Jesus then turns to his disciples and implies that Elijah has come. The mantle of Elijah has come on John the Baptist. And you know what they did? They killed him. And guess what? They will also kill the Son of Man. So as we see this pattern throughout Scripture, following the Lord always has monumentally severe side effects. So Jesus goes from the Lord and now turns the narrative back to suffering. Suffering, glory, suffering, glory. The Christian life contains both suffering and glory. Suffering is the prerequisite to glory. What Jesus is talking about here and in all the Gospels about suffering, now it's not general pain and suffering. In other words, a broken toe or cancer or loss of a loved one in and of itself is not what he means by carrying your cross as a Christian. Lost people get broken toes and cancer and lose loved ones. But the true Christian suffering in the midst of physical pain and loss of loved ones is from the temptation from our flesh and Satan to curse God and go into despair and to sin. It's Satan's lie and saying God doesn't love you and what you're experiencing is random and outside of his sovereign will and control. That's the suffering we experience as Christ followers. Satan's continuous arrows towards us. But also, those arrows come in different ways. But it also means to suffer for Christ is to get fired from your job because of biblical convictions. It means losing friends because you're a newfound faith. 
They don't want to hang around with someone who doesn't want to get drunk or high with them anymore. It means rejection when you share the gospel with someone who doesn't want to hear it and they let you know loud and clear. It means having to turn down a dream job that would cause you to travel every weekend and not be able to gather with your church family. It means your grandchildren not visiting you, when you because you talk to them so much about the Lord Jesus. It means being called bigot, hateful, self-righteous, judgmental, exclusivist. You will be called evil. No one is going to say they dislike you because you love Jesus. They will come up with reasons to justify their hatred of you. The early Christians were falsely accused, called atheists, cannibalists, all sorts of twisted things in order to have some type of justification to persecute them. So we can't be shocked. We can't be dismayed. But this is promised to us. Philippians 1.29 says, It is granted not only that we would believe in him, but that we may suffer for his sake as well. That promise, that granting of believing in him, but also suffering for his sake. But this dark tunnel, this dark tunnel we are going through is a short tunnel. And we see a bright eternal light at the end. Maybe you're here at Providence for the first time today. And you've heard about Jesus and other, at other places, but you don't know who he is or what he has done for this and that. If not, we want you to hear this. That Jesus came down and experienced the suffering we all deserve on the cross. And why did he suffer? Because God is holy and just. He cannot tolerate sin. We are sinners. We have broken his laws, every single one of us. From the first one to the tenth one, from all of them, we have broken his laws and are under his wrath. But God sent his son to suffer on our our behalf and be raised, that we may be raised to share in his glory. So have you repented of your sin and trusted in his death on the cross alone to save you? Repentance is is painful. It's hard. It's hard to admit your sin. That I'm a dirty sinner, Lord. I need a Savior. But repentance is required to come to know God through Christ and live with him forever. And he is calling you now to take up his cross and follow him. Will you? Confess your sin to him and call on Jesus to save you. And you know what? He will. Life with him is joyful. It is painful. He never lies to us. But it is filled with joy. Jesus doesn't lie to us and say that life with him is daisies and rainbows and comforts. He never promised us that. He says it will be painful. But is it worth giving up your soul to avoid all this pain? Is it worth missing out on seeing the glory of Jesus and sharing in his glory forever?
all who seek to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer. Not may, will. Not at the same degree, not at the same level, but we will all suffer for being a bearer of Christ's name. A call to Christ is a call to self-denial. And this is totally countercultural, is it? Self-denial? It's the total opposite of the way we live here in our world today. It's paradoxical. It's strange to the world that we worship a crucified Savior. This is absurdity to the world. Has it changed? When Paul says, this is foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews. The cross of Christ. So we see in Mark 8, 27 through 9, 13, that Christ has communicated his mission of suffering and glory to us, that we may know that suffering and glory are coming to us as well. His mission of suffering and glory glory will be reflected in his followers as well. And because of this, let us bear the cross of Christ regardless of the consequences, knowing the glory that awaits us. So Providence, do we, do we encourage one another in the face of suffering for Christ? Maybe you currently aren't facing ridicule for being a Christ follower, but maybe your brother or sister in Christ, maybe they were forced to resign because of their stand with Christ for what was right or what was wrong. Do you support and encourage them, comfort them this time? Maybe you're facing pressure from your job to work long hours, even on Sunday, and your boss doesn't care that you're a Christian. He doesn't understand why you need to be with your church family. Maybe your kids don't understand why you still follow the Bible and believe a crucified Savior. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe you're enduring physical pain or psychological pain, or the loss of a loved one. And now you're facing the arrows of Satan who is trying to drive you away from God and to curse him. He is prowling around like a lion, looking to devour you. But take courage. His doom is sure. Remind him of that with Christ's promises. With all these scenarios, we know that they should not come as a shock. Painful, yes. Shock, no. But will you persevere anyway? Through the grace of Christ, not in your own strength. Some of you have gone through physical therapy. Some of you are currently in physical therapy. Some of you have just finished. So it's, it's grueling, isn't it? You've just completed a major surgery, and then the next day they expect you to physically perform some torturous routines. They're crazy, aren't they? This is a painful process, and you're wondering, why do I have to do all this? The trainers know. They are smarter than you on this thing. I trust them. You have to trust them. They know what comes to, to those who persevere in doing all that they ask. When in the midst of this torturous pain, you think about the outcome. You think about the rewards of the perseverance. A fully functioning leg after years of pain and partial disability. Without rehab, you don't get that. 
Likewise, without the suffering and sharing in Christ's cross, you miss out on the glory that is to come. Earlier this morning, we witnessed two baptisms. You notice when they were back here, we didn't put on them bejeweled crowns. We didn't set them on high thrones. Crowns and thrones don't mark those who are heirs of Christ's kingdom in this current life on earth. What marks heirs of Christ's kingdom? Death and resurrection. As our Lord Jesus died and was raised, his brothers and sisters die and are raised. And baptism pictures this. Suffering and glory. Death and life. When Haley and Sarah went down in the water, they died. The old them died. They were united with Christ's death, as Romans 6 tells us. It is a picture of the suffering aspect of the gospel. But listen, they didn't stay in the water. They came up. Resurrection, new life, glory, the gospel, temporary suffering, eternal glory. Don't, forever, don't ever forget that. For all of us, don't ever forget your baptism. I'm reminded of her every day of life in Christ, of the daily dying to self and living in Him. So when the trials of life from fallen Christ come, look to the glory that is promised to us. We feel the reality of suffering, but just as that is a reality today, the reality of glory to come. Both are promises to us that we can trust. Christ has communicated his mission of suffering and glory to us that we may know that suffering and glory are coming to us as well. A little suffering with an abundant glory. Let's pray. Our Father, the suffering and glory of your Son and your people was planned before creation. We glorify you in that. Lord Jesus, thank you for suffering for our sake and bringing us into your glory. Holy Spirit, thank you for applying this redemption to us and reminding us of Christ's words to us. Daily remind us of his word. Amen.